Locked on NBA Thursday edition, special Thursday edition. Ben Golliver joining us from the Washington Post, as he always does. I'm David Locke, and the NBA mourning the loss of Commissioner David Stern, a man at the forefront, paramount in the changing of the league, uh, behind the dream team, behind the marketing of individual stars behind the international expansion behind so many things that we know of the league today and and then one that was a character inside of that ben goliver uh knows it well joins us now and and there have been uh i I actually think ben the the passing of david stern has shown us the really the the depth and greatness of NBA writing because there have been uh, numerous pieces written here in the last few hours that have just been remarkable from David Aldridge to Woj to Ethan Strauss to others who have really written fabulous pieces uh, that characterize different aspects David I I think I said David Aldridge but uh, different aspects of of who this man was and what he did for the league. There's no question. I think he touched every single media member who covered the league during his tenure. I mean, there's there's no way he couldn't have. I mean, for me, as a growing up as a fan, it was always the touch point was the draft and uh, how he was always front and center, welcoming the players, taking the pictures, a huge smile on his face. Every once in a while, he'd get heckled, right? He'd, he'd maybe cup his uh, hand to his ear and just kind of, you know, urge the crowd on uh, in his own, you know, very charismatic way. But once I was writing, and I, I really remember kind of his State of the Union addresses, whether they were at All-Star Weekend or at the NBA Finals. And I'll never forget the first one of those that Adam Silver did. You know, uh, Commissioner Silver w- was a little bit nervous. He was talking really fast. Um, he wasn't uh, maybe conveying all of his points like he would have wanted. And it struck me while I was watching that is, you know, it's just a very different uh, public presentation than what we got from David Stern, which was just total confidence. Uh, in front of crowds, a real charisma, always a gleam in his eye, a sly smile, uh, always ready for a fight. You know, if he got a confrontational question, he would give you a confrontational answer. Uh, And he really just put on a show. And I think now that Adam's gotten comfortable in that job, you know, watching his, uh, you know, his uh, press conferences, it's a little bit like hearing from a, a college professor. You always learn a lot. You come away more informed with nuances that you never knew before. But with Stern, it was almost like he was a showman. And that's how I would compare him to some of the the best players that he had during his era, whether it was Magic, Michael, LeBron. I thought Stern, in his own way, had a showmanship that's just so rare among uh, major executives. And I think that was a big part of what made him so memorable. I'm going to try to divide this conversation into two parts, one being this, the the what was this character, and then also his impact. So let's stay on character for a minute. When I was thinking about this, my memory as a reporter who's been in the league now for probably more years than I than I want to admit, but I, I think I'm going on 26 or 27, was that if Stern was in the building, and maybe particularly in Utah, uh, it, it was such a validation of anything going on. Oh, David Stern's here. And, and almost, to as you just said it, that there was a level that, like, the if Stern was here was kind of something to the to the ilk of Michael or Larry being there. I mean, he really became one of the stars of the league. Oh, no doubt. And not only that, but I bet you when he was in Utah, there was a lot of jazz employees who were trying to be on their P's and Q's by their best behavior because they didn't want to, you know, uh, rub him the wrong way or not put on their uh, best presentation. Because I think not only was there the charisma factor, but there was also the fear factor. I think that he inspired so much respect 
and so much fear from basically everyone in the league, whether it's the league office or the teams themselves, that uh, you know his presence, uh, you know, left uh, you know left a sense with everybody. Uh, you know, certainly uh, when we're looking at kind of the confidence that I mentioned earlier, or just maybe uh, his leadership style. He was somebody that there was no adversary too big for him. You know, he fined Michael Jordan for wearing the wrong sneakers, right? He uh, went after Greg Popovich over the load management. He fined Kobe Bryant an amazing amount of money uh, for using the homosexual slur, uh, you know, in, 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 I think, 2012 or 2013. He fined Mark Cuban, who some would say was the most forward-thinking owner for, you know, a solid decade there in the NBA I think something like 20 plus times, you know, running into the millions of dollars. So it didn't matter if you were a championship winning owner, a championship winning coach, a championship winning player, one of the biggest stars that basketball has ever produced. Stern was not afraid to pick a fight with any of those people. And I think that speaks to his character as well. That seems to be an incredible contrast to the commissioners of Bud Selig, of Roger Goodell, of other commissioners. Why was Stern able to do that? Well, I think that part of it is that he built up a lot of credibility by making lots and lots of money for everybody, right? I mean, we know that the scale of the growth was just sensational, but you know, some of these franchises were selling for less than $100 million uh, during the, the early days of his tenure. And you fast forward now, I mean, the, the average franchise value is well over a billion dollars. And so, of course, he had a lot of support from the owners because he made them a lot of money, but it was the same deal with a lot of the players, too. He understood how to market superstar players better than they understood how to do that themselves, especially back in the 1980s and 90s. Look, we get caught up with social media and brand building and all these things of the modern superstars. That was not a thing 30 years ago. I mean, some of these guys had natural star power and magnetism, uh, but they were still kind of trying to find their way as business entities. And I think Stern understood that, you know, the relentless marketing approach, taking things global, finding uh, you know, China, opening up China, opening up Europe to uh, American athletes. He was on the forefront of all of that. And I think he really commanded a lot of respect, um, you know, from the players because he was making them way more money than they ever could have, uh, you know, dreamed of. I, I think, uh, especially as his tenure unfolded, they were as they were signing new media rights deals, getting better placement on television uh, and everything else along the line. So I do think ultimately, uh, he became such a powerful commissioner, uh, the type of person who was feared and loved because he was really good at his job, which was growing the game, selling the game, finding new ways to market the game to new consumers, and making sure everybody stayed happy along the way. I think the signature to him was an ability to cross different aspects of the world. So here you have, I, I don't know which of these are relevant, but this is what he was. He was a Jewish New York lawyer, right? That's like really what kind of... And he and Larry H. Miller of the Jazz were incredibly close, who is a was a LDS, Mormon or LDS car dealer with a high school diploma, right? And at the same time, was it Abe Poland, I believe, was the owner of the Wizards or the Bullets slash Wizards, who was one of his closest associates at the time, who couldn't have been more different than Larry H. Miller. And then you get to that he did have whatever this uh, aura was that allowed him to interact with the players. I think that's, that's the uniqueness to what David Stern was able to do in that position. 
Yeah, well, I think that a lot of the the biggest figures in the NBA are incredibly confident themselves, and I think a lot of times confidence, charisma, kind of uh, attracts each other, right? Uh, you can kind of see eye to eye. I think so many people are used to being kind of waited on when they get to that level, or they're used to being uh, intimidating uh, people around them, and that wasn't going to be stern. I mean, he was going to be able to speak his mind to basically anyone in the room. I mean, there's kind of legendary stories about even the lockout meetings where you know, he was basically telling the biggest stars of his league, including Dwayne Wade, to their face, you know, this is how we're going to do it, X, Y, and Z. And those guys wanted to go right back at him and getting into arguments and tips about it. Um, and I think that that just shows you the ingrained um, spirit and fight that he had in him. And I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of times when we're looking towards, you know, leaders, whether it's, you know, presidents or uh, political leaders or uh, CEOs or commissioners, uh, you know, personality really matters. And I think that he had a way of, you know, not only, uh, you know, getting people to kind of, uh, you know, agree with, you know, kind of walk in lockstep with what he wanted to do, but he also had a way of making people feel valued and making people feel human, too. I mean, look no further than the Magic Johnson HIV situation in the early 90s. I mean, I think Magic still to this day praises Stern at every opportunity for how he handled that, how he stood up for his players. It's a similar thing with the, the racial and gender diversity within the league office. I mean, that was a huge uh, point of emphasis for Stern, and, and it's really been something he's handed on to Adam Silver as well. Uh, and then the same thing for uh, you know homosexual rights. I mean, whether it's the Jason Collins situation or the, the Kobe Bryant find that I mentioned earlier, I mean, these were sort of passion projects for Stern where uh, you know he was probably ahead of the curve, especially compared to a lot of other uh, you know chief executives on, on his scale. Uh, in being outright and, and uh, you know, very forthright in what his opinions were. So uh, no, I think that he was a complicated figure. You know, to say that he was a bully or a dictator, which is what some critics painted him as, uh, especially during some of the labor disputes, I think at certain times that was correct. But I also think that people who worked with him um, might be able to describe a, a kinder, softer uh, you know, more mentorship uh, type side to him that maybe the public didn't get to see. He's Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, joins me every Thursday for Locked On NBA. We'll continue talking about the accomplishments of the NBA. And the biggest question that I have about David Stern, how much was Stern, how much was timing, how much was where the game was going to go anyway, how much was him just leading it, how much was him breaking new ground? We'll touch on all those things as we continue on Locked On NBA with Washington Post, Ben Golliver. So, Ben, that's the question I have, and I don't mean it to minimize because I think that stewarding something that was going to go there anyway is equally as important. Some people would screw it up. So do you think he broke ground in the sense that he took a league that was going to go somewhere else, someplace they would have never gone, or do you think he stewarded a league in some of these ways in where it was naturally going anyway and he did it well in leading the league in that direction? Well, look, I, when I'm trying to parse out the credit for the NBA over the last 30 or 40 years, I always start with Michael Jordan because I like to think that his talent was so incredible, his personality was so great, his style of play uh, was so intoxicating. Uh, you know, even his smile in the commercials, you know, were so amazing that pretty much nobody could have screwed that up, right? So I always start with him. But after Jordan, I think he stirred in the conversation for being arguably the second most important figure in the NBA's rise. Um, you know, there was a lot of different ways that uh, the NBA story could have unfolded. There could have never been an international push uh, that Stern kind of spearheaded, right? You could have tried to focus on 
just the United States and, and building up your market share against baseball and football and, and fighting that fight, right? Think about how much that's changed. You know, if we look forward to the next 10 years of the NBA, all of the major players who are going to be kind of fighting for championships are guys like Luka Doncic, Giannis, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic. I mean, the 2,500 stars, they're all international players. That groundwork was laid by David Stern decades ago, right? And that was all his vision. It required a lot of capital expense and sticking his neck out time after time. So I think trying to paint him as only a steward uh, would be, um, you know, would, would be unfair to him. You know, I think he really did have a lot of vision, a lot of natural marketing ability. And I think also that he understood uh, better than a lot of other uh, executives of his, of his ill, the power of the media. I, I do think even now the NBA is incredibly media friendly. The access is extraordinary. Even NBA entertainment, I mean, the, the work that they've done over the years to bring some of these superstars into our living rooms has been phenomenal. And again, that goes back to Stern. Uh, you know, same deal just, you know, with the showmanship in terms of All-Star Weekend. You know, I think they really, uh, you know, turned that into, uh, you know, a signature uh, showcase uh, for the entire league, for all the stars, in a way that maybe it wasn't in the pre-Stern era as well. So I can point to a lot of different things where I think uh, – you know, Stern, uh, you know, scored very well, definitely above average uh, if we're grading him on a curve uh, when, when you're talking about how well he handled the league. His work in the labor front, what do you th- where do you think that is most important? We're in labor peace now, seemingly, because of the excess of money. Where do you think his lack of labor peace turned out to be most valuable, or do you think there were areas where that was a mistake? Well, look, I mean, he was a hard-nosed, you know, sharp-elbowed negotiator. There's no question about it. And when you look back at some of the quotes, uh, I think he's actually gotten his harshest criticism during those time periods. I remember uh, at one point, Brian Gumbel, during the most recent lockout, called Stern a plantation overseer. I mean, that's that's harsh terminology, uh, you know, especially for a respected media member like Brian Gumbel. He obviously did not use that language lightly. Uh, But I do think when you're looking back at that last lockout, the way that they were able to sort of redistribute the basketball-related income uh, in favor of the owners basically wound up guaranteeing profitability for essentially every single team in the league, almost regardless of how you ran things. Unless you ran up some crazy you know, luxury tax repeater bill, you were going to basically be profitable. And when you look at the you know, average uh, you know, franchise valuation increases, just even from the last decade, it's astounding. I mean, they went – from basically the average team in 2010 or 2011 was worth 369 million. The average team now is worth 1.9 billion. So we're talking about more than quadrupling in a 10-year time period. And so much of that valuation has come because the teams are just profitable entities, no matter what. Doesn't matter how good you're building it. Doesn't matter how big your market is. Doesn't matter if you have a star or not. Um, you know, the, the media rights deals have become so big. And the owner's cuts of that is so large that uh, you basically can't lose money. And I do think when you have uh, you know that kind of financial success at the top, it creates a stability factor that lets the game kind of speak for itself. Uh, it keeps things on kind of an even keel. It's what I think actually helped um, all parties agree to just sort of you know, roll forward the collective bargaining agreement during these last negotiations uh, and basically you know sign an extension so that there wasn't a, a work stoppage. And I think, uh, you know, to me, that was kind of the most important moment uh, from those labor disputes uh, was this most recent lockout. 
I'm probably a not a good enough sports historian uh, to do this. I, I don't. There's no question Stern's the greatest basketball commissioner of all time. But when we compare him to a Bowie Kuhn or a Pete Rozelle, does he have a claim as the greatest sports commissioner of all time? Well, I'll be honest. I only care about the NBA, so I'm the last guy to uh, to answer this question. Um, but I think that when you're looking at the NBA and how they would handle Stern, I think Adam Silver's going to have to name something after him, right? I don't know if it's going to be a trophy. I don't know if it's going to be a you know uh, an award of some sort where you know you're you're giving it to a business leader within the league. But there needs to be some way to remember uh, you know David Stern. I don't know if they put up a, a statue of him outside the NBA's headquarters, maybe in the lobby of the NBA's headquarters. But I do think he rises to that level of importance, right? Where um, he needs to be, you know, commemorated in some way. And it's like if, if we have the finals trophy named after Larry O'Brien, and even diehard NBA guys like us probably would struggle to list off the most important accomplishments of, of Larry O'Brien's tenure, right? Uh, then I think that they're going to have to come around and, and find some way to properly honor David Stern in the not-too-distant future. Well, I hear Adam Silver has some mid-season tournament he'd like to have a trophy for. <laughs> well, look, let's make sure it's going to be around for a while, okay? We don't want to make it the Stern Cup and have it disappear after five years, you know? So let's let's make it a little bit longer lasting than that. He is Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. It's the perfect time to touch on an article he just wrote, which is what does the NBA look like in 2030 as we hit 2020 today? We'll do that with Ben as we continue. It is Locked on NBA Thursday edition with Ben Golliver, special edition as the NBA mourns the passing of former commissioner David Stern. NBA 2030 was your piece for Washington Post. Seems even more uh, appropriate with the passing of David Stern to now look ahead. So it's the stewardship of, of Adam Silver. And Ben, what do you think the NBA is in 2030? Well, I tried to survey a wide range of voices. I did talk to Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts, uh, Charles Barkley at various points over the last few months, and then just other coaches and executives around the league. And uh, I think so much changed in the last 10 years that I actually got a lot of gun-shy responses. Like, people were a little bit hesitant to make kind of like big-picture predictions because they look back at what the NBA was like 10 years ago. I mean, the three-pointer was not nearly such a big deal. The teams were not worth nearly as much as they are today. Uh, you know, some of the, the, the superstars, I mean, there was questions about who was going to be the next generation of superstars, and so many guys blossomed at this point. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, you know, some of the responses, I guess, were a little bit hesitant. But I think on the court, people expect even more three-pointers. You know, that was a, a common answer I got. Look, you know, the Steph Currys and the Trey Youngs, like there's only going to be more and more of those guys coming. Uh, there hasn't reached a saturation point. They're up again this season. Um, and even you know some of the teams that were holdouts about three-pointers are starting to shoot them more often, so expect more of that. I think a lot of people also expected the, the pace to continue uh, uh, and potentially that would come in line with some of Adam Silver's goals of you know, shortening the games and making them better television experiences. So I think the hope would be you would have a faster, uh, more free-flowing game as well. And then I think a lot of people are looking at the schedule proposals uh, where, you know, Adam Silver has already said maybe it's a midseason season maybe it's going down to 78 games. And I had one person, uh, one executive tell me, look, like, I think this is a first step. You know, if he takes it down to 78 games and they're able to kind of replace the revenue with the tournament, I could see them wanting to cut the schedule even more. And, you know, basically the, the main argument would be 
you have to keep the stars healthy. That's the way you make the most money possible. And if you have such a long season and the stars are sitting out or the stars are injured, you know, regularly, like we've seen these last couple of years, that's just bad for business. So I think those are some of the, the major basketball predictions that people made. So I'm going to give you a different perspective on this. Um, and it's something I, I actually struggle with trying to figure out all the time in my job. Uh, I have a 14-year-old daughter who's a huge NBA fan. Okay, loves it. Knows, obviously has great access, knows everything. I'm not sure she's watched a whole game all year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you, man. And, like, I, I actually I did a story with uh, Adam Silver about the TV ratings uh, a week or two ago. I, I encourage people to check that out on the Washington Post. But he had the same comment. He's like, look, we have to fight for eyeballs every minute of every game because – uh, if it you know slows down at the pace of play, if we go to too many timeouts, I mean whatever it might be, there's always something else on YouTube. There's always something else on Netflix to kind of compete for people's eyeballs. And he pointed out not only are there you know, people who are your daughter's age who have never subscribed to cable themselves, he also pointed out that there's a lot of cable subscribers who are my age and, and your age who are watching significantly less cable than they used to even four years ago. And I think it's something like 50% uh, as often uh, cable subscribers are watching cable compared to four years ago, just because of the uh, competition from streaming services and other, uh, you know, social media and everything else. So it's a, a serious challenge for them. I, I do think they have to get, uh, you know, really dig in and try to make it a more watchable game. I had another person, you know, kind of flippantly say, look, if 10 years from now, we still have referees going over and looking at the monitors with headsets on, then we failed completely as a league. And I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I don't know if that means they need to scale back the, the reviews, move all of the reviews to an off-site situation, um, or just, you know, reduce the, the types of things that can be reviewed. One way or another, they've got to simplify this thing so that the referees are not, you know, t- playing such a major role within the gameplay. I do think that that would help uh, you know, youngsters like your daughter and even guys like us who are just sick of staying up until, you know, uh, after 11 o'clock watching games. I think that would help us, you know, lock into NBA games even more than we already do. I mean, they're going to have, by 2030, they're going to have an entire fan base, probably from the ages of, you know, important ages, right? 24 to 30, 24 to 32 maybe. So it's anybody who's 14 to 20, you know, maybe anybody who's 10 to 20 right now, so 20 to 30 who don't watch games but follow the league. That's an incredible concept for them of how they're going to monetize that and still uh, at some point get along something important enough on television that those people or stream it or whatever to watch it. The other one I think is uh, I think broadcasts have got to become interactive in some fashion. Like I almost think that I've got to do my radio broadcast live on Twitch taking questions. I love this idea. So he also mentioned this too. They want more of a customized experience. So if you're a viewer, you can choose your preferred camera angle. You can choose your preferred audio feed. So whether that's you or the opposing team's radio broadcaster or a fan podcast version or a celebrity, you know, who's watching the game and is, is kind of providing commentary um, or maybe an interactive thing like you're describing. They want fans basically anywhere, especially fans who are going to be watching on mobile or streaming, to be able to customize both video feed and audio feed to kind of help hook them in. The other thing that they're looking for, and this might not apply to your daughter, but it would apply to you know people of legal gambling age. I mean, they want to have in-game betting basically, you know, wherever it's legal, 
as you know regularly as possible within the game. So you can play fantasy in the game. You can gamble within a game. Uh, you know, based on what you know the next shot or the quarter score or the halftime over under or whatever it would be. Those are some other ways they're trying to make sure that they can maybe you know stick and, and keep viewers uh, in a way that they they maybe aren't quite doing as effectively right now. All right, before we wrap up, let's go on the court for a second. Just sitting here January 1st, what's your top five power rankings? Wow, that's a good question. I would say um, right now I would still go Milwaukee number one despite uh, the Christmas. I would go uh, Clippers number two. I would go Lakers number three. From there it gets a little bit dicier. I would probably go uh, Boston. I think probably Boston and Miami in somewhere. I guess Boston four, Miami five. So Miami and Boston instead of Philadelphia, despite Philadelphia's performance on Christmas Day. Yeah, you know, they've just been way too frustrating for my liking. I know there's a lot of people out there who share my frustrations. Um, I thought they showed the championship formula on Christmas. I thought they won Christmas. I thought Embiid was the single biggest winner, the headline star of Christmas. Um, But they're on a three-game losing streak as we're speaking. Uh, they have some pretty fundamental issues with their offense. I'm not sure they're the most versatile team in terms of matching up with other teams' strengths. I think they match up great with Milwaukee, uh, but I don't like their matchups necessarily as much with either of the L.A. teams or some of the other teams in the, in the Eastern Conference. And I just worry that you know the body language stuff, the buy-in stuff. You know, I think we, we heard Josh Richardson this week say, Maybe people aren't quite accountable enough. That's that's some real red flags for a team as talented as Philadelphia. So that one scares me off a little bit. Denver has a better record than the Clippers. You don't include them in the top five? No, the Denver, the, the problem there is I think they're plus five in terms of how many home games they've had compared to road games. We know how good they are at home. So I think that uh, Denver is a little bit worse than their record currently indicates. And I think the Clippers are definitely better than their their record indicates. Um, the main factors with L.A., of course, Kawhi missing some time, Paul George starting the season late, Shannon missing a bunch of time as well. Um, I think if they want, the Clippers could be a team that really makes a strong run at the number one seed uh, You know, down the stretch of the season. It depends on how they're going to want to manage their, their season uh, You know, and trying to keep Kawhi healthy and all that stuff. But to me, uh, we've seen them rise up in big moment games. We've seen them play at a really high level. Uh, you know, for for long stretches of the season, they just haven't been completely healthy. And I think both the the Clippers and actually the Rockets too. Now with Eric Gordon coming back, I think both those teams are a little bit better than their records. I think the I think what you just brought up is going to be the most interesting storyline to the next four months of the season, and that is the the run for the number one seed in the West. Because I I actually think there's any of six teams that could make a little bit of a run at it. And the teams that I think are probably the best teams, which are the Lakers and Clippers, have reasons why they might not want to make a run at it or might feel pressured to. So in the case of the Lakers, we have, the you know, whether you ever start worrying about LeBron's health and then with the Clippers, what they're doing with Kawhi and PG, but the Nuggets, Rockets, Mavericks, and Jazz all might be able to be good enough to make some sort of a run. And with the East-West win-loss much more even the number doesn't have to be nearly as big as it once was i mean i think 54 55 could very easily be a number one seed for sure and then throw on top of all that uh the eighth seed you know race in the western conference right now is a mess i mean it's multiple games under 500 nobody seems to want to have that spot so if you're getting that number one uh seed and locking up you know your choice of the spurs blazers grizzlies or whoever kings whoever it might be in that eighth spot 
that's a lot better than having to deal with Chris Paul and uh, and the Oklahoma City Thunder in the two seven matchup. So it's almost like you're getting a buy if you win the the number one seed, and we'll see if that maybe influences some teams' decisions to go for it or not too. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at five thirty eight. They have the Lakers at fifty nine, the Clippers at fifty eight, which makes total sense. But I don't think both those teams are going to keep the throttle down. And so the minute they don't keep the well, throttle look. down, then you have the Rockets at fifty five, the Nuggets at fifty three, the Jazz at fifty two, and the Mavericks at fifty two. We just need to make sure the Lakers and Clippers are on the opposite sides of the bracket. Okay, that's the only New Year's resolution I have for either one of those teams. I don't care if they they do go all out for the number one seed. But keep an eye on each other. Every all these teams love to pretend. Oh, we don't standings watch. You know, we're not paying attention. Look, Lakers and Clippers pay enough attention to separate each other so that you can set up that dream Western Conference Finals matchup. Well, I mean, to that point, you might want to make sure you go get the number one seed so you don't get the two and the other one gets the three. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, do you think Houston has enough to make a run though? Like, if they get Gordon back, or or how are you feeling on them? Well, I mean, I think Harden is the greatest offensive player. We've talked about this before. And I just think we underestimate its impact. I mean, it's ridiculous. People are double-teaming him at 40 feet, so they just score. You know, they're playing five on four. Like, well, they'll score every time doing that. And it feels like the right strategy. Yeah. I mean, the Jazz and the Bucks have the right strategy. You play behind James Harden. And when it becomes the right strategy to play behind a guy, you actually have broken the game. Yeah, I think if you're Houston, you're happy with where you sit at this point of the season based on... I mean, all the China stuff coming into the season with, uh, you know, the, the questions around that, uh, trying to integrate Westbrook into what they're doing, trying to replace Chris Paul, and then dealing with the injury stuff on top of it. I mean, they had a, you know two or three injury blows right off the bat, including Eric Gordon, which, you know, really stretched for a while. I think if you're Houston, you're feeling great about yourself. And, you know, if you're a Rockets fan, you're probably saying, yeah, we can go get that number one seed. I think if I had to wager on it, I still, I still trust the Lakers enough to be able to hold on to it, but... I think their toughest uh, competition will come from the Clippers and Rockets in that order. Well, I think the Lakers' month of December was super impressive. You know, they lost a bunch of games in the middle, but that was a really hard schedule coming. And what they have done is they've won all the games against the bad teams, and then they won the majority of the games against the good teams. And that's what that's what you have to do. So I think that des- they deserve a great deal of credit. Uh, for that. He is Ben Golliver. Go to his Twitter account at, at Ben Golliver and then click on his pinned tweet, which lets you subscribe to his Washington Post newsletter that comes to you every Monday. We appreciate his time, his look back at David Stern and look ahead. Anthony and Adam will be back with you tomorrow. Ben, thanks so much for the look at David Stern's career in the special edition of Locked on NBA. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Take care. That is Ben Golliver. Read him at the Washington Post. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. This has been Locked on NBA. Rejecting the screen and Hollinger and Duncan both have episodes out right now. So tell your smart device to play podcast Hollinger and Duncan or podcast Rejecting the Screen now. Have a good one.